0: Sometimes asking for help is very hard because when we ask for help, it reveals that in some way we are vulnerable and needy. Before the age of GPS being available basically everywhere and in everybody's pocket on your phone, the stereotypical description of the macho man was that he would never ask for directions. It would always be the wife asking her husband to pull over at the next gas station and ask for directions on how to get to this place or to that place. And the stereotype is that the man refuses. He always knew where he was going and he wasn't going to humble himself and embarrass himself by walking into the gas station and admitting he was lost and asking for help. There's something within all of us that wants to put on a facade of strength. We want to pretend that everything is okay when actually nothing is okay. There's the other side of the coin where some are so insecure that they lose control at the very smallest thing. They seem to have no faith at all. And it seems as if just the smallest little thing that happens sends them into a, a spiritual and emotional tailspin. And it's almost as if they live in constant fear. Just the slightest bad news that may or may not have anything to do with them sends them into a tailspin of worry and anxiety. I think most of us probably live someplace in the middle of those two extremes. We may fall closer to one than the other, but for the most part, I think we seek to be level-headed and keep life in its right perspective. But there is truth to the old saying, is there not? That when it rains, it pours. And sometimes there seems to be a tidal wave of trouble that would come against us, that would come into our lives. The psalmist tells us that weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. I think in our Christian experience, we learn that when trouble comes, there is a sense that we can step back from the trouble and we know this too shall pass. This morning, we were looking at God's providentially, providential leading and the way he providentially leads his people And we know that the Lord leads his people through deep valleys, but then to the next mountaintop, but then to the valley again. And we can look at the highs and we can look at the lows and both shall pass. Life goes on. Right now you might be in a time of weeping. You shouldn't be caught off guard really by those times. The Lord has told us that in this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. I think sometimes too many of us really do believe in the prosperity gospel, even though we would claim to not believe that, even though we would criticize the charismatics for preaching the prosperity gospel. We practically fall into the trap of believing it ourselves because. We expect, we want our circumstances to always be good because for the most part, we've always known good. We in the United States and Canada both really have not found ourselves in situations where we've faced real, deep persecution for the gospel. We've not been, well other than a few men locally here, who have not been arrested for the preaching of the gospel. You know, for the most part, we have lived lives that are very comfortable. We've had food to eat. You've had a roof over your head. You've had clothes on your back. And there's a sense in which when we face trouble, we're caught off guard. Lord, why me? Why, why Why is this bad thing happening to me? But it doesn't take long reading the Scriptures to come to a very clear understanding that trouble is part of God's plan. It's as if God has written trouble into the script. We live in a fallen and a sin-cursed world. And in His sovereignty, God uses the trouble, even factors the trouble into His plan as part of His plan, For the purpose of conforming his people to the image of Christ. For the purpose of changing us and molding us and shaping us into his image. Yet we as the Lord's people find ourselves in a very different spot than those outside of Christ. Because you and I know where to turn when trouble comes. We know that there is a place of refuge when trouble comes. We know, even as this psalm begins, that there is a rock upon which our feet have been set. And we know we can come to the Lord and we can ask for help. And so I want to speak to you this evening on the subject of a prayer for help. A prayer for help for help. And verse number 13, as I've already pointed out to you, is our text. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. It's a prayer for help. The first thing I want you to see about this prayer is that it is a believing prayer. I can reword these points in different ways if you're taking notes. You could say that this is a prayer of faith. It's a believing prayer. David's the author of the psalm, but we learn as we come to the New Testament that it is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that reveals to us truths about the person and the work of Christ. On the one hand, this is David's prayer during a particular hour of his own trial, but This psalm is also a prayer of Christ to His Father during His hour of trial. And we can apply this psalm to our own hearts in our own individual, unique, or perhaps ubiquitous hour of trial. We can believe that the God that we pray to is a God that can actually deliver and a God who can actually help. We see that it's a believing prayer because it's a prayer to God alone. Just look at the text. One of the things that is always very important for us to do when we read, especially in the Old Testament, is to pay close attention to what name of God is used. The the names of God are not really synonyms in the sense of, you can say that you know something is good or you could say it's great or you could say it's excellent or you could say it's wonderful and you can kind of mean the same thing by using those different words. The names of God are used by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures on purpose and each name or title of God has a specific nuance that our minds are to be drawn to. And so if you look closely in your Bible, you'll see the word lord in all capital letters it is simply the hebrew jehovah the what we call the tetragrammaton it is that proper name of god it is the name that god used when he revealed himself to moses when he said i am i am it is the name of the covenant keeping god it, it emphasizes that aspect of his nature, that aspect of his character. And you'll notice that it's used twice the same way in the verse. It's the name for God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And because of this covenant union, because of this covenant faithfulness that God has with his people, that that Christ has with us, this covenant faithfulness that God has with Christ, if we look at it from that messianic perspective, God loves us God loves you God loves Christ because of this covenant faithfulness this covenant union we have to come to an understanding that God is favorably disposed to us he loves us he cares for us he's faithful to do his people good and we can take this as a promise as much as we can a prayer It's a a prayer of faith. It's a believing prayer. In this prayer, David doesn't seek the help of the heathen. He's not crying out to a false god. He's not crying out to an idol. He's not crying out, if you will, to the arm of the flesh. If we apply it messianically to Christ, Christ is not seeking help from his disciples. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ asked his disciples, watch and pray he called peter james and john further than the others and he he asked them to pray well they weren't much help at all they fell asleep and the lord went back and he said could you not watch for one hour the lord wasn't trusting in the arm of the flesh christ was not trusting in his disciples to help him pray through but no christ was praying christ was the one interceding to the Father. But even in asking his disciples to pray with him, he wasn't trusting in them. His hope was in the Lord. His his prayer was to his Father in heaven. If we apply this to ourselves, then we must learn the lesson of trusting Christ for help. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that the Lord can help you? I'm reminded of that story. That man who brought his demon-possessed child to the Lord. And the disciples had tried to cast out the demon from this little boy, and they had failed. And the man asked Christ to, to do it. And the man said, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Is this not where we find ourselves so often? We face circumstances that, from our perspective, it's hopeless. Lydia's father was famous for his T-charts. He would take a piece of paper, and he would draw a line this way, and draw a line that way. Pros, Cons. And so when he was faced with any significant decision, he would make a T-chart. And he would put all the pros down on one side, all the cons down on the other side, obviously praying and and seeking the Lord in the midst of all that, but trying to come to a solution, trying to figure out what decision to make. I joke sometimes that, you know, sometimes there's no sense in making a T-chart If everything's a con and you don't find any pros, it's like, how am I going to get through this? How, how, How am I going to survive? You might be facing something like that now that you think is hopeless. You can't see the end. Might be medical. Might be family. Might be a wayward child, loved one. Some circumstance that you deal with. There are times that we have liberty to share our burdens with other people. There's a big difference between sharing our burdens and griping and complaining. We want to be careful not to fall into that. And we must be careful not to complain about our needs. But if you want to complain, complain to the Lord, not to your neighbor. But there are other times that you think your circumstance is such that you can't talk to anybody. The burden is so great. The burden of your heart is so strong. And you think, well, nobody's going to understand. Well, the Lord understands. The Lord knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the grief of your heart. He knows the burden He knows the trial. He knows it all. One of the things that happens nowadays, especially with social media, people will go on social media and they'll post, you've you've seen this, I'm sure, they'll post some cryptic, passive-aggressive kind of comment, really crying out for help rather than crying out to the Lord. Here we have a believing prayer. It's a prayer of faith where the psalmist comes and he says, Lord, you're the only one that can help. Deliver me. Be pleased to help me. Thankfully, we can always share our burdens with our closest friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can put this prayer to the Lord. No matter what your circumstance is, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. It's a believing prayer. But the second thing I want you to see is that it is an earnest prayer. There's an earnestness about this. I say that because of the words of the psalmist where he says, make haste. From that perspective, we can say that this is a prayer of one who is desperate. One who is earnest. Time was of the essence. In, in David's case, had the Lord not stepped in, he would have fainted and stumbled, fallen. The weakness of the flesh would have gotten the better of him. The weakness of the flesh would have gotten the victory. And had, had the Lord not stepped in and helped in the moment, the weakness of the flesh would have gotten him. In Christ's case, there was an earnestness because he knew he was about to take to himself the sins of all of his believing people. This is the same Christ that just in a few moments after would, on the cross, cry out these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The burden of Christ, the the agony of the Garden of Eden, uh, sorry, not the Garden of Eden, the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane was not a fear of death. It was not a fear of pain from Roman nails that he knew were about to come through his hands and through his feet. It wasn't a fear of the pain of a crown of thorns. It wasn't the fear of a beating. It wasn't the fear of public humiliation. The agony of the garden was the dread of being forsaken by God, by his Father. For the first time ever, God, as it were, turned his back on Christ. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The agony of the garden was the agony of what Christ knew was about to happen. That God the Father was going to lay on Christ the Son the sins of all those he came to save. And there was no getting out of that. Christ had no desire to get out of saving his people. But the, the dread, the fear, if I can use that reverently, it's, it's difficult to, to select language to use here without impugning on Christ some deficiency. Christ had no deficiency. Please don't misunderstand what I mean. But what Christ is is dealing with there is the prospect of separation from his father that had never happened before. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What's the point of a generic prayer That has no earnestness or no urgency to it whatsoever. What's the point of a prayer that says, in essence, Lord, whenever you get around to it, maybe you could think on me? We don't find those kinds of prayers in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is more of the attitude, Lord, come quickly. Lord, I'm desperate. Lord, you must intervene. Lord, I plead with you. It's it's the language and the vocabulary in Scripture of begging and pleading with God to come and do something because I can do nothing. In prayer, the head's involved. But more than that, prayer comes from the heart. There's a sense of desperation, a sense of of pleading. There is an earnest desire for the Lord to intervene, to step in, because we know that we can do nothing. If we could fix it ourselves, we wouldn't pray. But the thing is, our problems are so great, we can't fix them. If it's worth praying about, then it's worth being earnest in prayer. But not to unpreach what I just said, I want you to see, thirdly, <coughs> excuse me, that it is a submissive prayer. So look at what the verse tells us be pleased. That's how it begins. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. It's an it's a earnest prayer, yes, but it's also a submissive prayer. When we pray, we're not demanding of God things, we're not God's boss. We're not forcing God in prayer to do something that he would not ordinarily do. We're not manipulating God in any way. Even in our using the language of of begging and pleading, which which is the biblical language associated with prayer. Even in that, we're not manipulating God. Remember Ezekiel 36? I encourage you to read Ezekiel 36 sometime. You'll you'll see there promise after promise after promise. The Lord says, I'm going to do this for Israel. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I will, I will, I shall, I will, I shall, over and over and over and over. And so it's it's sure that God's going to do this. There's no doubt about it. God's going to do it. But you get down to verse number 37 of Ezekiel 36. And it says, I will yet be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. The Lord is is teaching us there that the Lord is going to drive us in our circumstances to a place where we pray for the Lord to do the very thing that the Lord was going to do anyway. But the Lord is going to bring us to our knees and bring us to the place of prayer to pray about it. Remember what the catechism says about prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. The Lord is the one who changes our will. The Lord is the one who in his providence and circumstances directs us and leads us to that place of, of prayer. And so in a very real way, What prayer is, it's conforming our wills to God's will. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes me. Prayer changes my attitude toward a situation. Not that God is my servant to do my bidding. But no, the Lord in prayer by his spirit, communes with our spirit. And it's part of the sanctification progress of molding us and shaping us into what he would have us be. The psalmist writes here, in essence, Lord, if it be your will, deliver me, make haste to help me. Now here's a place where we have to be very careful and very sensitive and understand uh, really some some deeper theological truths here that that are important for us sometimes it's not the lord's will to deliver you in this life maybe you've prayed for someone with cancer or someone with some other disease or, or something like that and you you've prayed for their healing And the Lord has not seen fit in his will on this side of eternity to provide that healing. Does that mean that the Lord has not answered prayer? This is where we have to be careful and understand some, some deep water theologically. And I would say to you, no, the Lord has answered your prayer. The Lord has brought Deliverance. You remember Hebrews 11, that great hall of fame of faith? We read in Hebrews 11 that by faith there were some who stopped the mouths of lions. And we look at that in wonder and awe. What great faith to stop the mouth of a lion. We also read in the same chapter that by faith, some were sawn asunder. By faith, some were cut in half. By faith, some came to their end on this side of eternity. But what did they receive but a far greater reward than temporal deliverance? They received an eternal deliverance. They received a deliverance from the cares of this life and they were immediately united to the presence of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where I say we have to understand some, some deep theological truth and have a right, mature Christian perspective because we are so, we're so sinful. We are so consumed with now. Now. We're so convinced that right now is so important. And preserving this life is so important. I'll be careful here because I know there's some that disagree. But I think too many Christians have a very wrong and a very unbiblical view of death. I think COVID proved that. One of the things that I said back in North Carolina... That the new motto verse for Christians during COVID seemed to be for me to live as Christ and to die is to be avoided at all costs. It seemed to be the attitude of too many for me to live as Christ, but to die is to be avoided. And the fear of death gripped so many and caused so many to do absurd and ridiculous things. But here's the truth. And I don't mean to be insensitive in saying it this way, but if COVID doesn't get you, something else will. If the Lord has it for you to be at the end of your days, it doesn't matter. You can eat all the organic and health food you want to eat. If the Lord has it, the Lord has numbered your days. And if your number, if your days have come to their end, then there's nothing that you are going to do to stop that. That obviously doesn't mean that we live in ways that are reckless. But for the believer, there's no fear of death. The the sting of death is gone for the believer. What are you going to do to me? Send me to heaven? What's the worst that can happen? I get to go to heaven? Oh no. Death is the entrance of the believer into the presence of Christ. And so we must submit to God's purpose. In our praying, we submit to God's purpose. Be pleased, O Lord. This is my petition to you. This is what I beg. This is what I plead of you. Be pleased. Dr. Paisley used to say that he was immortal until the Lord took him. The man was shot at. The man was imprisoned. The man was hated by so many. He didn't care. He was immortal. He was on this earth to do the Lord's will to his dying day. Our heart's desire must be for the Lord's will to be done in our lives, not for our own pleasure, not for ourselves. If we had our own way, if you had your own way, I would submit to you that you would be miserable if you always just got your own way. You'd be miserable. We parents understand this, do we not? My kid wants ice cream for every meal. He wants chocolate cake and Snickers bar all day long. But as a parent, I know that's gonna kill you. That's gonna hurt you. That's, that's not gonna be good for you at all. And so as hopefully a wise father, I say, no, eat some broccoli. And the God of heaven sometimes looks at us, looks at our foolishness and says, no, that's not what you need. You need this trial right now. This trial is going to be the best thing for you. But sometimes he says, you know what the best thing for you is right now? You need this victory. You, You need this mountaintop. This is the best thing for you now. And we submit to what God has for us. We submit to his plan. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. But lastly, I want you to see that it is a consistent prayer. Now, homiletically, you can throw rocks at me and get your tomatoes or whatever and throw whatever you want. Uh, This isn't the best homiletical choice For the last point of the sermon I understand that uh, because I need to explain a lot of what I mean here but what I mean by this being a consistent prayer is that it's a prayer that was consistent with the actions of the psalmist he was praying for help he was praying for help but my point is that it's not a prayer for help And then in the aftermath of that, a sitting around and doing nothing. Let me try to illustrate it for you this way. If you are particularly vulnerable to the sin of lust, then you can't pull up your Netflix account and say, Lord please help me to not be tempted by what I'm about to watch. That's just utter foolishness, right? You understand that. You have a responsibility before the Lord to set no wicked thing before your eyes. You have a responsibility to flee youthful lusts. You can't pray for the Lord, Lord, deliver me from temptation and then press play on the next video. That's absurd. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about practical, practical matters. We don't say, Lord, help me to be saved, and then we, we add something and you know, do some work to, to save ourselves. That's, that's not the point at all. But we're, we're dealing purely in the, the practical realm here. At Bob Jones University, I had a Bible professor. He kind of illustrated what, I'm, what I mean here by putting it this way. The faith that moves mountains is also the faith that picks up a shovel and starts digging. Faith works. This is what James was proving when he had this whole discourse of, you know, you you show me your faith with your works, right? There's works that go with faith. It's not that that works somehow gains something of salvation, but there's a faith that's always accompanied by works as a proof, as a manifestation of that faith. I think maybe too often in our Calvinism, in our professed belief in the sovereignty of God, that we're so afraid of being called an Arminian, that any time any hint of human responsibility is even mentioned, we, we kind of revolt away from it and say, No, that's Arminian. I'm not, I'm not that. I, I trust in the sovereignty of God. Well, we're responsible. Abimelech. There's a few Abimelechs in the Old Testament. The one I'm talking about is in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech is an example of the fact that sometimes, sometimes the Lord does sovereignly and providentially prevent us from sinning. That happens sometimes. I'm convinced it does. I'll refresh your memory with the story. Genesis chapter 20, Abraham has gone into Egypt, has his wife, Sarah, and Abimelech sees Sarah. Wow, she's beautiful. And so he assimilates Sarah Into his harem. Abraham had lied and said, She's my sister, kind of a half lie kind of thing, but a lie nonetheless. She's my sister. And so Abimelech takes Sarah in. And at night, in a dream, the Lord came to Abimelech. And he said, In essence, to Abimelech, Abimelech, you've been lied to. And Abimelech says, I didn't know. I was told that she was his sister. I didn't know that she was married. And this is what's so striking. Abimelech's not a converted man. The Lord says to Abimelech, again I paraphrase, Abimelech, I know that you were lied to. For this cause have I prevented you from sinning against me. I find that just staggering. I find it staggering that the Lord would intervene in the life of a heathen man and prevent him from committing an adultery that he would have committed. I mean, let's be honest. He would have committed. But the Lord stepped in and stopped it. And I'm convinced that if the Lord does that for a heathen, How many times in your life and in mine, unbeknownst to us, has the Lord, in the same kind of way, just put roadblock after roadblock and prevented you from an absolute shipwreck, just absolute train wreck disaster? The Lord's gracious that way. And so we have that story of Abimelech that gives us an example of the Lord just stopping a man in his tracks. But we can't be presumptuous because we also have in the Bible the story of David who the Lord did not stop David in his tracks. David was disobedient anyway. It was the time when kings were supposed to be off to war. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. David was in the wrong place. And he looks out his window and there she is. And he lusts after her. He takes Bathsheba. He commits the adultery. Follows it up with the murder. Follows it up with the lies and cover up, the whole thing. Had David been where David was supposed to be, Asheba wouldn't have been there. That's why I say there has to be a consistency in our praying. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. But yet we don't run off into our sin and make more trouble for ourselves. We pursue holiness in the fear of God. two extremes that we have to avoid. We have to Avoid the, the extreme of praying and doing absolutely nothing. And the other extreme of just forgetting the Lord and taking matters into our own hands from the beginning. We have to be sensitive to the Lord's leading, sensitive to the Lord's direction. And then in that sense, we leave things in the Lord's hands and we trust God for the outcome. And so we believe God, we're earnest in our praying to God, we're submissive to the will of God, but we're consistent in our Christian walk with God, that we pursue holiness, we don't pursue trouble, we don't pursue more difficulty, we pursue deliverance, but we pursue the Lord's help, all along the way we're learning to trust the Lord. Part of the purpose of the difficulties that we face, we know this, is for that purpose of teaching us to trust the Lord more and more. The Lord has a purpose of increasing your faith in Him. So may the Lord encourage us with these words tonight and may the Lord challenge us with them as well for the things that we face. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Amen. We'll close them with a hymn ask you to take your hymn book to number 488, a good hymn to close our service with as we contemplate the world that we enter into day by day in the workplace or school or wherever the Lord has you go. Take the name of Jesus with you. Let's stand, please. We'll sing all these stanzas together, 488.